Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the much-awaited final division capsule, one of the favorites, the Northwest Division, with my standard two guests of David Locke, absolutely amazing, Locked on Basketball, Locked on, I like to think of it as everything, because they do such such great work, such comprehensive. I mean, we think about the whole network overall, and of course, the Utah Jazz, and Adam Maris of DNVR, and the Locked on Nuggets podcast, and this is a, a great episode. We go, you know, well over an hour on not only the five teams in this division, but also some on the league in general and where things might be going, what we're looking for this year. So I hope you really enjoy it. One note, this was recorded about two weeks ago. Um, I am still currently on my honeymoon. So if there's anything that seems out of date or a little bit like that, it's because it is. I apologize. That's just the way things work. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Take two. My pleasure. Oh, you're not supposed to reveal that. We're not going to throw Danny <laughs> under the bus, Adam. Oh, I tell sit- everyone that Danny <laughs> forgot to record the last time we did this. We would never tell such a thing like that, Adam. Why would, why I, I, would we I, do that to Danny? I, I was going to do a tearful revelation after the recording in the in my solo outro about how we lost this beautiful hour and a half conversation about the future of basketball, which in some at some times connected with the wonderful Northwest Division. It was like. Honestly, it was great. Like, I mean, the I, I'm sad that listeners aren't going to get to hear it because that was a like it was something that I truly enjoyed. And we'll get to some of the conversations that we had there here, maybe in a bridge fashion, maybe not. We'll have to see. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I, I do feel badly. I apologize to the two of you for spending some of your time, but to the listeners mostly, because I thought, I thought personally that was a conversation I really got a lot out of. And so I'm sad that they don't get to get out, get out of it what we did. I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Me I really, too. It, it might have been the best performance I've ever had. Too so bad, true. too bad nobody will ever know. Nobody so will ever true. know. We, and, and we can, we can just say that, that David, that David was brilliant and we'll just, it'll, it's just lost to the passage of time. Uh, we could start, though, with the same question we did then, which is, on Adam, I guess we'll begin with you. This division, you know, per, I would say fairly stable overall. Who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Yeah, one of our, you know, one of the big takeaways just looking at the NBA this year, not just the Northwest Division, a lot of teams are running it back. And, and I think the Northwest Division has a lot of teams. I mean, Denver is more or less running it back. Utah's more or less running it back. Portland made a couple interesting moves. They would probably be my answer for, for who got better. But I think they only got marginally better. I don't think they're in a different tier than what they were in last season. Um, you know, Larry Nance Jr. maybe adds a, a, an interesting wrinkle to them that maybe I'm under 
undervaluing just a little bit, but I don't think they're meaningfully different. And then you've got Minnesota and Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, absolutely more or less the exact same in that they are not trying to be great this year. And Minnesota is a team that by virtue of being a little healthier and, and hopefully not having as bad of luck both on and off the court as they had last year, maybe they're a little bit better. But I think every team in the Northwest Division is in the same tier that they were in last year. So I think Sam Presti got better because he's the only one who's guaranteed to have a job next year with no ramifications on anything he does this year. So that seems pretty good for me. I think Minnesota probably got better because coaching in the NBA is is really unbelievably great. I mean, unbelievably great in this league. And when you're not great, it's really obvious. And it was pretty obvious in Minnesota um, for the last few years. So their addition of Chris Finch midway through the season last year, I would suspect without really knowing that they would get better. The real to me, the real issue to me with this division, to Adam's point of running it back, is the moves that matter are the ones that happened at the trade deadline. When you analyze right. this division, I think you have to go back to February of last year maybe it wasn't February because it was the different season, but the trade deadline of last year, Norman Powell to Portland is a massively important move. And Aaron Gordon to Denver is a massively important move. Those are the two moves that I think have ramifications. And obviously Jamal Murray's ACL on the wet, on this division more so than anything that happened in the per se off season. Well, yeah, I, it, I agree with you, especially when you consider, and I can, you know, when you consider that a lot of the moves that the teams in this division made were about keeping things together. So I think that the Mike Conley retention by the Utah Jazz was extremely significant. I think that that, that is, but it is, it's less kind of like sexy because he was already there and he had a, had a bounce back year after that weird, you know, the, the weird year in 1920 with injuries and everything else. And then for the, for the Nuggets, I mean, I mean, one of the important things that I want to discuss is not only getting Aaron Gordon, which I think is a very fair point, but also giving him that extension and um, the ramifications that that has for the Nuggets as a franchise moving forward are, I think, extremely exciting. But thinking about it that way, I think is, is really good because th- these teams, Portland being one, Denver being another, really did set the table, not only, and, and they did it deliberately. I mean, both Gordon and Powell were becoming free agents fairly soon, Gordon in 22, right. Powell in 22. But they did that on an eye not only for the 21 playoffs, but for beyond. And so now this is the Blazers for the immediate future. And I mean, we don't know how long, how long that immediate is, but it is that immediate. (laughs) And then, and then for the Nuggets, it's the same idea because they've already extended Gordon. Yeah. With Denver's case and Gordon, this is the last few weeks have really been a signal, I think, to, to, um, especially the Denver Nuggets fans that the Cronkies believe in this team and are willing to pay. It's been one of the questions hanging over the organization organization for over a decade is just how serious are they about winning and are they willing to pay for that when the time comes and the time has certainly arrived when they added Aaron Gordon that looked like okay this is a final piece you look at the numbers and the short sample size when Jamal Murray and Aaron Gordon were both healthy and on the Nuggets roster last year they were pretty dominant I think a plus 18 and a half something like that net rating when uh with with their start what will project to be their starting five by the end of the season with Aaron Gordon so you had a a five-man unit that you thought okay this isn't just a maybe we get lucky and get a good matchups and we run to the finals it's a hey this is a group that we feel on any given night um on their best night are as good as anybody in the nba and probably will be for years to come and extending aaron gordon for the price that it ended up costing the nuggets somewhere around 88 million dollars over four years that was a sign of hey we're willing to pay we believe in this group and maybe this year will be a little weird with jamal murray's injury but aaron gordon to me represents that final piece for denver that makes me think 
they are going to be true contenders for the next two, three seasons. I'm not sure I'm that sold on Aaron Gordon. I just want to throw that out there. But let's see. I, I like it. Sold on I like as a fifth best starter, fourth best starter. Yeah, I guess I want to make sure. And he showed signs of being able to do that. I want to make sure he's going to do that. How about that? Right. So, yeah. yes, I, I think that that's true. And I thought he was impressively showed signs. I, you know, I, uh, I Aaron, we all have these moments in time when you watch this league as closely as all of us do. And sometimes, you know, you I can over maybe be overreacting this. But we played Orlando, the Jazz, played Orlando in a game. Vucevic was killing us. I mean, killing us. And Pride scored eight of the last ten. And they, I think Orlando was up like seven. And we, I think we were on the back end of a back-to-back out of Miami. Like, this one was like there on the plate for Orlando. And we missed a shot. And Aaron Gordon grabbed a rebound and dri- dribbled up the floor and pulled for three on a no-pass possession in transition. And it was like the entire Orlando Magic team just looked over at him like, what are you doing? First of all, he was shooting like 27% from three at the time. And we went on like a 14-2. to two run shortly thereafter and won the game and it's just one of those moments to me like the lack of time score teammate awareness or care jumped out to me at that moment now i thought he was more more adapt to that in denver and maybe he's matured and he just got paid which goes back to my you know my one of my first education moments in my life in the nba uh the old great kenny anderson i was talking to him he's like well i got paid now so i can try to win and so maybe <laughs> you know there is a lot of that in this league and so yeah. maybe that's something you know, let's watch. But I, I'm not like there are a few players in this. I'm now kind of throwing a bunch of stuff out there. This is kind of a bigger concept. There's a few players in this league who the Wilson Chandler in Denver actually was like my greatest example of this. We love Robert Covington in Portland might be this player also. We absolutely love the concept of the yeah, player. Yeah. But the reality is that Aaron Gordon shot 26% from three last year while he was in Denver. Right. Right. Like you actually can't really play in this league anymore if you shoot 26% from three unless you're playing center and you're not playing center in Denver because the guy they have there is really good. And Aaron shot 31% the year prior. So like, you know, like Aaron Gordon has had more years sub 30% shooting three in the NBA than he's had above 30% shooting three. Like, like, so let's like the concept of Aaron Gordon is awesome. Let's make sure the reality is just as good. So so David, can I can I start with the takeaway that if if the Bulls make the finals against the Jazz, I should pick Chicago because Vooch owns Gobert. Is that the is that the interpretation of that story? Because that's what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, Vooch, you know, maybe Gobert was hurt that game. I'd have to. It'd be really <laughs> fun, you know. You know, there's always this, this other element. Like, can I actually go? Can I actually go back and find that game? Like, did this actually happen? Like, I think it did. I, I will share with you. This is a total side note, but I was in a football press conference once with Mike Holmgren, who's like the greatest. Because you actually, it's this crazy concept. He's actually Mike Malone. I would give credit for this too. You ask a question, he actually listens to it. And answers it. It's an amazing concept right. for a coach. Um, so I, they had played. They had played Carolina. Uh, this has got all sorts of ramifications about nothing we're talking about. But where where they had played the Carolina Panthers and they had missed a kick to to w- go to overtime. They lost the game. And, and analytics showed very clearly that they should have moved the ball. You know, risk throwing a pass or doing something other than the kind of three boring runs right before. And so of course I was the jerk that like pointed this out in the press conference. And this was in probably 2006. And he suddenly dives into this story about I had the two greatest players in the history of the NFL and Joe Montana and Jerry Rice might have been Steve Young. And I was 
the offense coordinator, George Seifert, said to me, whatever you do, don't lose this football game. And I was like, that's fine, because I got the two greatest players in the world. And I ran an out route from either Young or Montana to Jerry Rice, and Deion Sanders jumped in front of it and had a pick six to go the other way. And I almost lost the game. Now, the truth of the matter was that Deion Sanders dropped the ball, so he didn't pick six. So... Mike Holmgren, like 18 years later, was still scarred by something that didn't actually happen but came close to happening. But the fact was, like, every other part of that story was exactly right. Like, he actually remembered well, it perfectly. That's so like, I always – go ahead. I have one I have one sort of similar to that. Not from not, – I haven't heard the story, but I just know it, is that Steve Kerr, early in his tenure, he pulled his starters pretty early from a blowout, and the bench players blew the game. And so he basically leaves his starters in too long in blowouts ever since because he's just too afraid of getting burned. It's a, it's right. an amazing thing how like those small circumstances that lead to like major embarrassment totally change the way a coach coaches. That's very true. And, and and your point, David, with Gordon, you know, bringing it back, it, it might be true. I think I just kind of did. I just counted these as we were talking here. I think last year when he joined the Nuggets, he had nine games where he att- attempted ten shots or more, and sixteen where he attempted uh, nine shots or fewer. So he had more games. Games where he was, you know, sort of this low usage guy, and and that's kind of what I noticed from watching him was he seemed content to be a fourth or fifth option, albeit only in about 25 games. If you go to his Orlando, uh, you know, his Orlando stint, even this year, he was taking 13, 14 shots pretty regularly. So we'll see if he adjusts to that. But here's what I find interesting about Aaron Gordon because I I, I hear a lot of people say oh he's overrated, he's this or that, and I, and I do think he's overrated relative to where he was drafted and maybe what he was projected to be. But you know, NBA rank just came out the all the almighty ranking and. Jeremy Grant went from this season went from 88th to I think 52nd or something like he made an enormous leap and I look at it and I go I think most people now see Jeremy Grant as a better player than Mikael Bridges OG Ananobi Aaron Gordon these are all guys wing defenders that you know maybe have a little skill and he's now leapfrogged all of them I think I might take him last personally and that's because I think uh, Jeremy Grant's skill set maybe lends itself more to being a bad go-to option whereas the other guys like OG Ananobi Mikel Bridges are great examples of this. They're really good, like three and D or fourth or fifth option offensive guys who are really great at, at defense. And I think that it, it's just funny how we value him. So when I say I think Aaron Gordon is the final piece, I think he's a great fourth or fifth option offensively because he can pass, he can dribble, he can rebound, he can cut, he's athletic. He can't shoot. That's a big, big, big mark against him. But he can do those other things. And I think defensively, he's extremely versatile, maybe underrated so on that end. And that's why I think he's a great sort of final piece to this team. Well, so it's really interesting with Gordon because there are kind of two boxes that I think Denver would love to have checked if you think about playing next to Nikola Jokic and if you're building an ideal defensive roster. So one of them is man-to-man wing defender. So somebody who can guard the LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard's of the world. And not every team has one of those players, but in an ideal world, you have somebody who can defend them. And then the other one is a, I like to think of it as a help defender. So somebody who typically plays power forward, though they can be other spots, and they clean up messes. And so in a lot of circumstances, including the Jazz, that's their center. But some some centers aren't great at that. And I would say Jokic fits that description. He can do certain parts of it because his recognition is good, but he doesn't have the functional length and some of the other stuff. We've talked, like Adam and I have done a whole podcast talking about that a lot. And so what I think is is notable about Gordon is I I share David's 
concerns about him offensively. Like I've long, I've long been frustrated that Aaron Gordon isn't really scalable offensively, but I also don't think that matters as much for the Nuggets because he's never going to be the hub. That's Nikola Jokic. That's Jokic's job. And Gordon, the threshold that ideally he would meet is that he shoots well enough that when he's standing out there, that the guy stays with him instead of gumming everything up. But one of the ways that Denver turns that on its head is by using cutters aggressively. And so if you have to kind of stay on your guy because he might be running to the basket, then it's a little bit different. And and then the other part is that I think Gordon did show some strides, which I genuinely like in in Orlando, the role shifted with him and Isaac and other stuff. I thought he showed more as a man to man defender than I expected, expected. I still don't love him as a help guy, but as a man to man player. And so, hey, if he can do that thing well, then that's something Denver didn't really have anywhere else unless you're a bigger believer in Will Barton's defense than I am. I, I think it's it's dribble penetration that you really have to stop in Denver. You can't get guys running downhill at Jokic because he's just cooked in that way. And I think Aaron Gordon gives him one more guy that is I, I actually think he's going to be a lead I'm going out on a limb we'll find out probably I mean halfway through the season we'll know but I'm going out on a limb th- to say that I think he can be an elite sort of keep your man in front of you guy um in, in wings even guards when he has to switch out so Denver could be a little more switchy uh and to me that's the most important thing defensively around Yoke we'll see if it bears out interesting he's playing with one of the smartest players in the league and I'm not sure that's a characterization characterization I would ever give him so I think it'll be interesting to see how it impacts him he's also 26 years old right so there's a lot like like almost to the day I think so there's a lot that he can still add to his add to who he is as a player he, he's he might be the single he might be one of the single most important players in the division this year yeah I, yeah he might be I have low expectations for him offensively I'll, just to make that clear I do think when Denver's healthy you've got Murray it's a great shooter Michael Porter it's a great shooter Will Barton and Nikola Jokic who are you know very good shooters I won't say great but very good shooters so yes you, you have a lot of spacing that I think you can afford one guy who maybe can't do that especially if he's a guy that can put the ball on the floor, not as a primary or even secondary sort of dribble drive guy, but as that third or fourth option as a pick and roll, dribble handoff, whatever, attack closeouts, he can do that. So I, I'm a little more optimistic about Denver not being sunk by his offense, but I'm not I'm not by any means trying to say I think he's a great offensive player. We just made a claim that they're going to be much better defensively with him on the floor. It, again, this is concept. This is kind of my concept conceptually 100 percent. he's 6 8 he's 225 230 he's the world-class athlete he's unbelievable um but yet last year according to cleaning the glass denver's much worse when he's on the floor is that did he get paired with michael porter jr a lot is there any is there any reason to why that is what's your thought on on why that is they were they were worse i'm kind of surprised by that to be honest with you though the lineup he played the most was with that starting group and i thought that starting group was very good on both ends of the court so i'm a little surprised to see he they was were, a oh, plus 4.5 points worse defensively 14th percentile with him on the court than off the court well there you go that's I, a surprising I, step. I can give you one i can give give you one stat on that Denver opponents shot 39.2% from three when Gordon was on the floor and they shot 34.8% from three when he was off the floor that's general that's a lot of that is happenstance yeah um, I, I, you guys, you guys both know one of my favorite bugaboos is opponent opponent three point shooting percentage. That there's a lot of yep. there's there's a lot that you can't control about it. Now there are certain things that I think you can move it a little bit. And so sometimes, like one of the most interesting with that, just as a quick aside, was that Hawks opponents in the early part of the year couldn't make a three when. Capella was on the floor. So there was this crazy, like, the, like that the Capella's on off stats were absolutely ridiculous. And it's like, he was great. Like, I mean, I, I think I had him on my fake defensive player of the year ballot, but it was like, okay, some of this stuff is him and some of this stuff is not. Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here on that one a little bit. I, I generally, 
believe in the concept that three-point shooting gets, you know, close to the norm, particularly. I do think the one thing that we missed in this league is specifically that. When you have a rim protector on the floor in a Clint Capella, obviously in the case I'm thinking about Rudy Gobert, you can have the other four guys yep. or other three guys probably just hug shooters. Yep. And it does have a tremendous impact on what the look is. So I would, you know, the next analytical there is being able to go to second spectrum and see what's the QSQ of what the shot quality is. Because I do believe that the one thing we have forgotten in this league is how much rim protectors impact three-point shooting defense. Yeah, the idea that it's an organism and that it, that players know, and I mean, you you follow the Jazz closely, you can see this when you, when they play that you defend differently when you know there's somebody behind you versus oh oh god if this guy gets past me then we're going to do that it, it changes the way you defend I think that's an important thing that I really want to keep an eye on and I would love to see those with that level of data access go into it because I th- I think there's some I think there's some substance there I, by the I, way I, I want to go back to Aaron Gordon just because I pulled this up and I think it's fascinating so th- I, I'm just mesmerized so first of all I loved Aaron Gordon out of the draft and I kept like wanting to love Aaron Gordon and I think he's been on the block for so long that every NBA person has thought about Aaron Gordon as a potential trade prop player and you try to figure out how to use him. So, I I mean, he's a really interesting player to me, so I'm probably overdoing this. But I think about Denver. So Jokic has got the ball in his hands, and if you're going to run a pick and roll, it's with some Michael Porter-Jokic combination, uh, maybe Monty Morris because he's so good at him. Will Barton, Barton, Jokic had the number one pick and roll pairing in like 2017-18. So then that means what Aaron Gordon is doing is he's playing spot up, he's playing isolation off plays, he's playing off screens, he's, you know, he's playing off. He's cutting. He's well, he doesn't. He didn't do a lot of cutting. He didn't get a lot of plays off cuts last year in, True. in Denver. Like he, I think, if you look at it, and what's interesting about that is like he, in Denver, I guess he got some. These are all the things he's actually not good at. So like that's really surprising to me, and that's why I get interesting. Here's the other one I just looked up that is just stunning to me, and this is from Synergy. What do you think he ranked defensively in isolation defense? I mean, I would have guessed. I would, well, it's, again, last year is hard because I think he was he was half speed in Orlando, but no, um, this is in Denver. Just the 25 games in Denver. I would have guessed extremely high. Seventh percentile. Wow. Well, how many, was he tried a lot? Not a huge. No, it's a very small sample size. But it's like really like that's surprising to me. That's to me is some if you shut if guys don't try you in isolation, but the only times yep, they fair. try they score. That, that that's that that would be my biggest thing because we saw him uh you know against Kawhi Leonard in, in that Clippers game absolutely give him a hard time. We saw him against the 76ers in that stretch uh, look dominant defensively. So I, I don't know. I yeah, I'm, I'm good point. A little skeptical. Okay, no, let's let's keep an eye on it. I just think it's a Hey, it's let's be perfectly honest about this division. I'm not telling people not to listen to us. It's not a very interesting division in regards to new pieces. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to one that is. The, the most interesting pieces are Aaron Gordon and how Chauncey Billups uses Norman Powell, Dame Lillard, and CJ McCall. And I, other than that, we kind of know what we're getting. I want to go to one other edition in Portland. And so while I'm interested in the Billups stats shift and like how how differently Portland plays and boy buy-in offensive defensive schemes and all that. I was much lower on where Portland was and where they were going before they got Larry Nance. And what Larry Nance to me, what he gives Chauncey Billups and this roster is a little bit more flexibility because I, I think Nurkic is a wonderful player. And I think that he, he did well for Stotts when he was available, which of course was a huge limitation last year. And so like, he, you know, that you can, you can do that defensive scheme that they wanted with the heavy drop back and everything else. And that Nurkic can, you know, he can be a hub within the offense to an extent, not, not like his former teammate Nikola Jokic, but you know, within the realm. But what, what Nance 
Vince gives them is a couple, like, he gives them primarily another capable defender, but he gives them a defender that it gives the, the Blazers scheme versatility that they didn't have. And so, yes, Damian Lillard is going to be probably a bad defender for his entire career. I mean, we're at this point, yeah. unbelievable player overall. But generally speaking, if you can surround one or two limited guys with talent and scheme, and I'm not saying the Blazers necessarily have either, but they have more possibilities now, that that makes me a lot more optimistic that there could be something there. Because I've long thought of the Blazers as a a team that wasn't a viable threat to win a championship, where Lillard is an unbelievable player, but they just didn't have quite enough, and they were always going to run into a Warriors, a current Bucks, a current Nets, you know, like a team like that, that there was always going to be somebody better than them. And I still think that's true, but they're more in the mix now. And I can see, like, you know, the idea of, like, a conceptual ceiling, a top and outcome where they're a lot better defensively and they're going to be damn good offensively yeah I, defensively i mean larry nash jr definitely provides some entry i mean they couldn't be they can't be worse than they were defensively last year they were really bad especially in a playoff series just could not get any stops so larry nash jr just he's so active um you know he's always one of the guys that that's at the top of the nba especially from the forward spot and deflections and steals and and those types of things so i think he brings that energy and athleticism Offensively, you're right. Denver, I thought, beat Utah or beat, beat Portland this year using some of the things they learned from the Utah series the year before. In particular, if you have a guard that's just absolutely cooking you, throwing you know everything at them up top and trying to trap them and get the ball out of their hands and then attacking the roll man, even if they're good passers, as Gobert can make those swing passes, uh, Yusef Nurkic can make those swing passes. If you really meet them at the foul line on the roll and you try to make things as difficult where they have to make dribble moves and then complex reads, they struggle. And I think Larry Nance Jr. might provide an opportunity to pu- to put him, if you get into a pinch like that offensively, to roll him and be a little bit more dynamic rolling and making plays out of that. Um, so maybe they solve that. I do wonder, though, if Larry Nance and Yusef Nurkic fit together. And if that's their – I mean, that's, they're clearly two of their top five players. And I wonder if they're going to be a seamless fit or if it's more of a they look better with one of them on the court, not both. First of all, I love Larry Nance. So I'm 100% with you on kind of – his ball movement, his passing on a team that, you know, he's a credibly willing passer for a big, I think he's in like the 90th percentile assist rate while in Cleveland, um, which, you know, really would be hard since those guards don't pass. Um, every time yeah. you give it up, you were never getting it back. So I think, you know, I really think he's in a tremendous pickup. I think the unique thing to what you just touched on, Adam, is in Denver and in Utah, as much as you'd like to have defensive versatility and everyone wants to talk about that now, if you have Rudy Gobert and Nikola Jokic, they're going to be on the floor. Like, they're your best player. They're going to be on the floor. I don't care how spread out somebody gets on the Jazz five wide and Rudy's got to go guard the corner. He's going to be on the floor. And I don't care how much someone's torching Nikola Jokic in the pick and roll. He's going to be on the floor. Like, it just doesn't matter. Those are your guys. In Portland, that's not the case. So they can now play Nurkic or Cody Zeller or Larry Nance as their closing center, however they want, whatever matches up best to them, and however they wish. Because the only guys that have to be on the floor late in the game are Dame, CJ, and Norm Powell, probably. They don't, like... Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert are on the floor for the Jazz. Probably Boyan Bogdan, Mike Conley. Excuse me, probably Mike Conley. And then, and then you figure it out. In Denver, Michael Porter Jr., Nikola Jokic, and probably Aaron Gordon are on the floor. Okay, like you're not. You can do all these schemes and all this other stuff. And we can talk about. And, oh my gosh, the Jazz get versatile. 
Rudy Gobert, Rudy Gay, right, for like 12 minutes a night if they need it because yeah. Rudy's playing 34. But in Portland, this really truly gives them massive versatility on how they play. It's yeah. it's a great point, and it also gives them you know if it's it's injury flexibility. So if Nurkic misses time, heaven forbid, it's never happened before. Then you have a different way that you can play. Also, I think the Cody Zeller acquisition is extremely important for them. Like I, I thought that when he's been available, he's been a totally capable NBA center, not like top tier or anything like that. But you know what? He's, Getting him for the minimum is fantastic. He's better than a backup center, yes. in my opinion. And it makes it a little bit interesting and a little bit weird because wh- as you're talking about, David, a bit of them being interchangeable, I wonder how many times they might actually end up going to him down the stretch instead of Yusef Nurkic. Nurkic like a higher ceiling player, you know, more talented, this or that. But I do wonder if it just fits better sometimes when they have Cody Zeller. And more importantly, the Blazers lost to a very depleted Nuggets team in the playoffs last year in large part because they didn't have anybody at backup center. They played Carmelo Anthony there for large stretches. Just having a body who's in, and Cody Zeller's a very capable guy. He's not going to stop your top tier centers, but he's at least going to make it hard for them. So automatically you get an upgrade just for having anybody besides Harry Giles or, or uh, Carmelo Anthony. This is a really important point. This is so I am really bullish on the Blazers. I, I actually find myself right now completely against almost every narrative that's out there on the Western Conference. Um, other than I think Phoenix and Utah are good. And then I really am lost on the Lakers. I think the Clippers and Denver are going to be very good. And I think Portland's going to be good. So like all the teams, everyone's kind of down talking in a narrative. My numbers, my analysis has them as good. Portland's one of those. Number one offense in the league after they got Norm Powell. I don't see, unless Chauncey Bulbs really screws it up, there's no reason for them not to be. And when we talk about like using, you know, the, you really smart people People's phrase. I think it's heliocentric. Dame Lillard is like the most unselfish heliocentric player in the league, other than maybe James Harden. Like he really does move the ball and helps with helps guys. Number number two is, and this goes back like if I'm trying to find a historical reference, but I'm all right. So I'm gonna use this is an old one. The Lakers traded for Pau Gasol to, and they end up winning a title. I'm not saying the Blazers win a title, but what no one ever talks about is they replaced Kwame Brown, right? right? So they replaced the 30th ranked power forward in the NBA with like number one, two, or three. The Blazers didn't go that far, but to Adam's point, they replaced maybe the worst backup center in the NBA with a really, really good one. Yeah. And they replaced this one of the le- really Neil O'Shea just gets a pass because he's so nice to the media and they, everyone loves him so much. But like that roster was terribly constructed last year. David, David, I, I have to stop you there. They were a championship caliber roster. No one can say anything differently. It's completely obvious. Sorry, right. sorry, sorry, sorry. Somebody, somebody took over my microphone for ten seconds. I completely apologize. That's 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 not true. I mean, my concern on Portland is I do believe Terry Stotts is like an offensive basketball genius. I do and too. Is one of the great offense, and I think there's a chance that they're that they're going to really miss. Terry Stotts. Now, maybe Terry Stotts just did enough things over the years. And 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 really, like, if you're a huge X's and O's guys, lifting the pick on the pick and roll, giving, you know, having it be an area screen instead of a screen coming to the ball, having Dane go to the screen, right, you know, in a way that other coaches weren't doing at the time. Like, these are... These are things Terry implemented. Maybe they'll just, you know, Chauncey will just copy him. But he's a really good offensive coach. But from a roster standpoint, that team is much, much, much better than it was a year ago at this time. And frankly, getting rid of Carmelo is a huge upgrade. What yeah. Melo, Melo served an important role on the 1920 Blazers because Neil O'Shea 
had a roster that was so like, devoid of so like nineteen dash twenty or nineteen twenty. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he I mean he was in, he was impactful at age nineteen and twenty as well, but that was in a different city in this division. Um, but it was but Melo like he had a role to play because O'Shea had so few capable forwards on the team that they needed somebody who was alive, and Carmelo was alive last year. This is one of my you know like uh, one of my things from last year that I, I dug out the full season stats. So cleaning the glass. When Melo and Cantor were on the floor together, so that filters out garbage time, 119 defensive rating. That is horrendous. Mm. And you replace, as you mentioned, you replace Cantor functionally, let's say, with Zeller and and a little bit of Larry Nance, depending on how Chauncey wants to get the rotations. And then I don't know exactly what they're going to do with Melo, but they're going to be playing better defensive players. Like whatever, whatever Billups wants to do there, whether it's, you know, like going a little bit smaller with somebody like Snell or wants to maybe Nasir Little just gets that role full time. And if he's healthy enough to do it, but they're going to be better defensively than Melo because they're not going to be worse. And so I think that's a really pivotal part of this equation for the Blazers because Yes, it's true. They were, they were dangerous offensively at times during those minutes. And like they actually partially because they had a lot of those minutes with, with Dame Willard, like they were technically positive there, but you give yourself so much latitude to be when your defense is just even slightly better than it was. Okay. It's weird to think that Cody Zeller and Larry Nance changed your team, but I'm big on both those guys. <laughs> and, and remember, like, I am too. as an, as an, it's, a, like- it's an 82 game proposition too. Like, I mean, you're going to need minutes from those guys at different points. We don't know when those points are, but they're going to need them. Let me, let me give you this on Cody Zeller. Like, okay. Here is his per- cleaning the glass percentile on off differential. Okay. Now I got it. Bismack Biombo sucks and that's been his backup, but still like does Cody Zeller help you win? 86th percentile plus 6.6, 77th percentile plus 3.2, 95th percentile plus 12.1, 62nd percentile plus 1.7 differential, 78th percentile plus 4.4. He had one bad year, minus 1.4. Last year, 5.3, 80th percentile. And what's most interesting to me about it is it's not all defense. The offense has always been better when he's on the floor. So he's doing stuff well. I, I think it, I think those are two really good pickups. Like this is, this comp, this division is like, I, I when, when we had our failed recording i said i think i sent you a text adam that said like really good conversation on a really boring division right now like (laughs) it's really boring like because you know like nikola Jokic is established and donovan's like i think the most interesting thing to me is like what players actually get better that are in the division that change the division because there aren't really those outside forces other than norm Powell and aaron gordon like does donovan get better does my aaron does michael porter jr get better does I don't think there's anyone up Portland that gets better. I I like to always hear this. Like, what what does it mean for Don? Because he's so good already. What does it mean? What does it look like if he makes a lead? In his fifth year, right? So it's a little bit if you kind of look back at three comparable players to their career, they all made leaps. So Bradley Beal, Dame Lillard, and Allen Iverson, who I think are kind of in different ways. Like, one thing that people don't really realize about Donovan is he's really like the second best shooter behind Joe Harris in the NBA and like catch and shoot and spot up and things like that. He's an unbelievable shooter. For the amount of, for him to shoot 39% last year with the amount of off the bounce threes he takes is pretty astronomical is there actually another step there does he like become 11 threes a game and he went from seven to nine he went from five free throws to six does he get to eight that's how bradley beal got to 30 points a game dame lillard same point in his kind of similar point in his career he suddenly just upped 
took one or two more threes, but at the same time got one or two more free throws. Donovan added an assist, one more assist a game because he, you know, if you look at the pick and roll distribution of the Jazz last year, I believe I'll double check this. It was almost equally distributed between Joe Ingles, Mike Conley, and Donovan Mitchell. Like, does that change? Does Donovan Mitchell suddenly get over 50% of the pick and roll opportunities on the team? Or are they actually playing him off the ball more? Like, how are they using him um, in the playoffs when teams were double teaming him? Quinn suddenly started running him off screen, so he was catching the ball on the move, coming from away the action so the double team couldn't get to him. Is that what you're going to have to do with him? So I think there's a, you know, it's going to be interesting to see because of the amount of focus he'll have, but I think he's made the natural stride so he gets a little better with his reads offensively he might actually find Rudy on a lob every now and then he gets you know he gets a little bit he sh- his shot distribution and his free throw percentage just change a little bit just kind of the natural very subtle right so 26 becomes 28 effective field goal percentage from 52 becomes 53 or 54 like that yeah. that's what that's what I'm talking about but that's you know that's when you're great that's that's that subtlety is a big deal is the team better if his usage goes up and not not better but as the team are they comfortable with that because he's already a 33.5 you know percent usage guy which is higher by the way than dame lillard's ever been on any season in his entire career how's that for crazy that's pretty wild man. that's a pretty wild stat so is the team because this is one thing i thought and this is really going back a year but it's one thing that i thought that when push came to shove, there were times when Donovan went a little bit into hero mode, and look, he is a hero. He's that good. But I just wondered, I watched and I thought, hmm, there's good players on this roster that maybe maybe that's a bad thing when if it happens too often. There aren't a lot of players on this roster that can just beat you. Right, right. So when it gets right down to it, and it's three minutes left in the game, and everyone's tightening up, and you're running a pick and roll, and they're switching it, like, Mike can beat a few guys off the dribble. Jordan's probably not in the game at that point. Like, it's kind of Don's time. So I just think he has to get better at it at times. And as... As as David knows, like for for me, as you both do, like one of the the thresholds for me is undeniability, and I think that it can mean a lot of different things. And you, you, it's interesting you brought up Lillard and Beal, and like some of the stuff that you do off ball. Like a lot of people think of undeniability as one on one, I'm dribbling the ball a bunch of times and I'm getting a bucket. I mean, Kevin Durant in that respect, he can do that, but other guys can't. And with Will, with Donovan, if he can get to that point where he's just a little bit beyond where he was like in that, you know, he had some really truly great moments in that Clippers series. If he can get a little bit beyond that, then maybe the, maybe the Jazz offense can, cause like, I mean, one of the things with the Jazz offense is just, can they, can they handle, can they get good shots reliably against elite, elite defensive talent? Like a team that has five good defenders that has guys that are, you know, like sized or that can do all these different things. And I think Donovan is the key to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, the Jazz bugaboo has been switching defenses, right? Now, they didn't actually have that big a defensive problem against the Clippers in the playoffs. They had or offensive problem against the – they really had a defensive problem. True. Right. Um, you know, like here – let me – so it's hard. Last year, the Jazz only played like 20 clutch games all of last year because they were – but of shots per clutch time, which is a little bit of a weird stat, right, because Donovan's minutes played in that – like he only is 21st in the league. And if you do it per minute, it gets a little bit higher. So I don't think he was outrageous in that regard, right? Like if you, if you take him per 100 possessions to try to equalize it, then he moves up from 21st to top of the league. And so then you could say, then he's, you know, it's, it is too much. 
but he wasn't like, I don't know, like he's not noticeably worse. Sure, he can be a little bit better. I mean, I think that's that's probably the improvement we're talking about, right? Like he and De'Aaron Fox, same year of the draft, both are really, really heavy late in games and both could increase their efficiency. Hmm. A good a good margin. And Zach Levine's probably the next one in that group. Yeah, he's interesting too. But those are hard times. I mean, you know, like there aren't a lot of guys that shoot very well in those in that final five minutes of close games. So other than the guy in Denver. But he's seven yeah. one. <laughs> um, I do, go ahead. No, no, you go, Adam. I was going to move us to Minnesota. Yes, just, that's but, where I wanted to go. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it here just saying this. You mentioned the coaches and how there's so many good ones. And I do think the margin between like the 90th percentile and 10th percentile coaches, maybe I, smaller perhaps than, than you feel. It's just that the wide, uh, the wide outliers, the really, really wide outliers, especially on the bad end. And I don't think there's many of them. Maybe every year there's one or two that are like, Hey, this guy's actively hurting the team or has lost the, the locker room or whatever. And I think that, and so maybe that was it with Saunders, you know, over these last few years. Chris Finch, what I know is when he was in Denver, I felt like as a lead assistant and as sort of the offensive guru, I felt like the Nuggets had the most entertaining style of basketball and and really the most, I would say, the true form of, of offense that um, the Nuggets should always be aiming for. They achieved that best when Chris Finch was here. I don't know if the, he should be credited with that. I think Jameer Nelson was on the roster as well, and he's a fantastic point guard. So maybe just having a veteran like that, you know, Denver's had a lot of young point guards. Maybe maybe that's the real reason why. But I am so curious to see what happens now because the offense I thought was very entertaining in Minnesota once they got it up and running. We didn't get a huge sample size with it. I'm so curious if we see a career year from town, and we should expect a career year from Carl Anthony Towns, but I wonder if it's even more than what we anticipate just in giving him proper spacing and principles and a team that's a little more ready to execute that, that system. I, I think it's a really fascinating, important idea that, like, I mean, there's always been this hope, and I mean, I go back to when I watched his film in Kentucky, that Towns can make these strides and become a more competent defensive player. And I, I stand by that. I think that there there is ground for him to gain there. But if he can propel in a way paralleling one of Finch's former lead guys in Jokic and be the engine of a of an elite offense, let's say a top 10 offense when he's on the floor. I'm not going to say when Towns is off the floor because that's a different thing. There might actually be like some real some real headway there. And if that maybe that's the way that Minnesota becomes a more competitive, viable playoff team is not by dramatic improvement defensively, but by reaching close to their maximum offensively. Yeah, that's usually the first step, by the way, when you have a bad team, one side of the floor improves dramatically and then you kind of figure out the other side. And to me, you look at the pieces there, that's an offensive roster. So to me, the first step would be, okay, we are a great offensive team. We've established that. And then maybe the second half of the season, if you're optimistic, or maybe next year, you start to fill in the the defensive aspect. But that would be my expectation for them this year. If, If they do surprise teams, it'll be because they're better offensively than we kind of are anticipating right now. Adam, I was actually with a very, very smart basketball mind. I'll just leave it at that. The other day, we were talking about building teams and rosters, and he was saying to me that he doesn't think you can build both at the same time. Right. You have to build one first. Yep. Um, and so in the case of the Utah Jazz, they built defense first, and then you adjust from right. there on how you do it. So um, 
to back up your point, like that's probably one of the five brightest minds in basketball I'm talking about right there, at least in my opinion. So it was pretty – who's lived through it. So that was a pretty interesting perspective to hear. Yeah. I, well, that's, that's great to hear. I, I, I have somebody smart agreeing with me. That, that makes one. Um, but no, I think uh, they're just so interesting. And Towns, by the way, I think actually has the talent. There's only three – maybe – really maybe only two or three centers in the NBA that I think have this, Jokic being, of course, one of them. But that I think actually has the talent to be unbreakable offensively he's so he can shoot he can post up he can pass he can probably shoot better than Jokic can't pass as well he can put the ball on the floor he hasn't put it all together and I think a lot of that falls on him but if this is the year with a coach that kind of gets it and a system that gets it I do think he's one of those guys where it's like we just have to live with being scored on tonight and 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 attack them at their weak points but offensively nine out of ten nights they're just going to score on us and we can't stop them they should trade the house so that Ben Simmons can play with Carl Anthony Towns I mean I understand understand that they don't want to give up Anthony Edwards, but I'm giving up Anthony Edwards. I think Ben Simmons and Carl Anthony Towns together are basketball magic. From I, I disagree for a very a very different reason with I think than some would which is I think that Ben Simmons is best like his value offensively in the half court is when the ball is in his hands I think Carl Anthony Towns is so good offensively that you don't want to take the ball out of his hands like imagine if you put so we've been comparing to an extent like the ideal role for Towns to Jokic if like let's say let's take that at his base what would happen if you added Ben Simmons to the Denver Nuggets would they be better at certain things I don't think I I think that's really faulty I just don't think Cat has that. I, I think he does. Okay. I mean, so, I, so there's one of the nice things about a, a player like Jokic, and I think the same is probably true of Carl Anthony Towns, is there's not one way. Denver has a way that they've built, and it's around Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, and that works. But I think if they tore everything down and just built around Ben Simmons and Jokic, the team would look wildly different, but also work. So the other really interesting thing for me with Minnesota, and this is going to be so complicated for Garrison Rosas and ownership, however we're defining ownership in Minnesota, that a transition is in place, but I believe it hasn't really formally started yet is how they're going to handle the D'Angelo Russell part of this equation because Russell is friends with Carl Anthony Towns he at his best can be a talented player offensively defensively I have my misgivings of course um, but w- where you slot him in because they have a lot of talented players they have Edwards who I think is going to continue to blossom this year uh, he was much better in this I mean he was horrible in the first half of the year and then he was very exciting in the second half of the year they'll have Malik Beasley hopefully for a higher proportion of the year and the other part with Minnesota is they can't really be worse at power forward than they were last year like they have some guys that are interesting we don't know if they're going to put it together mcdaniels and vanderbilt who just got a new deal which i'm excited about and maybe a little bit of torian prince or layman or somebody like that they can't really be worse so if they get something there russell is a big question mark he's a big variance piece and if towns is doing a lot i mean russell can play off ball he's done it at different points in his career but that part of it especially coupled with the addition of patrick beverly like how wedded is how how tied is Chris Finch to having to play D'Angelo Russell, both as a starter and in crunch time? Let me start with where you slot D'Angelo Russell. After the word four, when Ben Simmons comes before. So Ben Simmons four, <laughs> D'Angelo Russell, oh, if, and whoever else you want. Oh, if you can do Russell, if you do Russell as the principal in that trade as no, Minnesota, no, you do it. Russell and Anthony Edwards. Like, I'm telling you, like, I, there is like a principal rule in this league. Get the best player in the deal. Like, right. Ben Simmons is so good. 
He's so good. And the, like, the hard I know part we all about talk about everything wrong with him, but let's talk about everything that's right with him. He's the only 6'10 player since Magic Johnson who can get anywhere on the floor with a dribble at any moment, at any time in a game. He's incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm with I'm with you, David. I, I think he's absolutely incredible. And the thing is, is his best fit in the NBA is with a versatile center, somebody <gasps> that, that can pop out. And you're talking about Jokic Towns, and then, you know, there's a drop-off <laughs> there. So to me, it's a no-brainer he would be a an incredible fit there here's where he might not be an incredible fit and i'm curious your perspective on this david because you you're closer you're very close to the utah jazz you've been in locker rooms towns has not put it together or figured it out so far this year and he's probably uh, from an outside looking in on him he looks like a guy that always has one eye out the door one eye to greener pastures or brighter lights ben simmons very much the same great player but hasn't quite put it together some things working against him but some things he brought on his own is minnesota and all the turmoil they've just had in the towns era are they ready for that? Because you have to be really ready for that when you put those two guys together. That that's not going to work perfectly right away. You're going to have some bumps and bruises. Is it going to work out for them? So I love the question. And I think – so my viewpoint on Carl Anthony Towns is he just has a little chaos that has to be around him at all times. Mm. It's almost like a, a desire for negativity and chaos around him at all times. Like just personality oh. trait. That just is my take. And, you know, unfortunately, he's been also struck with like a tremendous amount of controversy or uh, tragedy. So not yeah. at least, you know, so that's really sad. Um, my part of what I do want to see if Ben Simmons and Carl Anthony Towns got together is that like, okay, they're both top 10 talents in the NBA that are probably going to come into NBA rank around top 20. Right. Right. And like, so this is your chance. Like if you guys can put this thing together, you become top 10 players in the NBA. If you don't, eh, you're kind of forever. So we find out. Um, I think Minnesota is actually probably the right spot for them because, you know, frankly, Cat has gotten away with an awful lot by being in Minnesota. And I think Ben Simmons would probably love to be away from that spotlight. Mm. It's interesting. Well, it, and it's also interesting of like, I agree with David's thesis that it's, that it would be good for them. But the other practical consideration here, and all three of us have seen this in different faces is do the players agree with that? Because at a certain point, reality matters and at a certain point, perception of reality matters. And that will be a challenging question for Ben Simmons next team, whoever it is. Yeah. Um, they're talented. They're so talented. I, I would love to see it. And I would love, and I think Chris Finch is one of the better guys from just a creative standpoint to take on that assignment. So I, I would kind of love to see it. Although I, I, as somebody rooting for a different team in the Northwest division, if it really worked out, I, I think it'd be dangerous. I think they could break into like seven, eight if they got Ben Simmons. And I think they're 12, 13 without him. So the one team we haven't talked about a lot so far is the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think there is less talk about, especially because the primary thing of their offseason was trading a guy. Al Horford, who was out for a lot of their season, right. and p- replacing him with somebody who they then bought out. I mean, I, I don't think that was a bad transaction for Sam Presti. It's just what happened. The pathway for the Thunder to relevance, should that be what they want in terms of competitiveness? Can, can, I, inter- can I interject here for a second? Sure. I think I'm heading the same direction, but I want to be the one who asks the question because okay. then I don't have to answer it. <laughs> um, praise, 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 praise. Great deals, great deals, great deals. Praise, 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 praise. Has this ever worked? Mm. It, it's It's challenging because there, I mean, so if we're going with the like full teardown asset accumulation, I, my theory of the case is that we're still dealing with a small sample size here. That, you know, these, aggr- the super aggressive teardowns. And yes, Shea Gilgis Alexander is still there. Those haven't happened very much. Like the process sixers, and I think the process sixers had the pieces to be a really good team. I mean, Joel Embiid was my permitted MVP last year. Marco Fultz, what happened to him was, I would argue, unforeseeable. There have been some that have disagreed. Like, I mean, the yips and everything like that, not necessarily like him being an imperfect fit. 
And like that's sort of a process. I mean, there aren't that many teams that have gone as aggressively as the Thunder are. So I'm not really at the point yet where I can say it. It's gotten enough tries. Um, but take, I think, take, but I think that there's some substance. I, I think we have a tremendously huge sample size, and I think it universally doesn't work. And what universally does not work very well in this league is having young rising stars at the same time. Mm, so, so how would you classify like the the earlier version of the Thunder, three eventual MVPs? And well, yes, I, did, I mean James Harden wanted out because he wanted to be the man. Yeah, but I mean uh, they didn't have to let I mean, him out. They made him. Yeah, like, Presty made a mistake like, there. I've written like, about like, Lamarcus Aldridge wanted out because Dame Lillard got the first bobblehead doll. Penny and Shaq wanted out. Kobe and Shaq, like it's and Rudy and Donovan weren't getting along great a year ago, right? Like this is a universal thing in this league that you take two young, two or three young players and have them all come up together at some point in time. Somebody's like, whoa, 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 this is my crap. So, so is is your argument that the Warriors worked because there was a clear hierarchy? I think so. I mean, the Warriors are probably an exception to the rule a little bit, or it's that you know, or that they didn't step on each other in the same way. And they also have a, the, the number one guy there, Steph. By all accounts, one of the top, you know, willing to share in other people's successes for a top guy. And I think to take it even a step further, because I think you're hinting on not just this doesn't just apply apply to a rebuild through a draft through a long process where they're all young although it especially applies i think it's just general about how your team is constructed and does everybody buy into the pecking order i know we've mentioned this before together that denver is an example of this because they sort of added one piece at a time and now they have all these pieces and and it seems to work but what would have happened if murray was the first pick in and then michael porter was the second and Jokic was the third would the team still have this great chemistry and structure the way it works i i think they're denver got lucky in many ways that Jokic was the first guy because I don't know if there's another star even semi-star player that would have looked at Jokic after one year and said hey you're our foundation I'm cool with that I'll play around you so there's a million things that have to break right and I'm with David on this and that trying to do this through the draft if you're not serious and you don't have serious players and coaches and everything around there from year one you end up getting guys that just learn a lot of bad habits or just a lot of bad things and I think the 76ers are actually a prime example of this Ben Simmons is and, and Joel Embiid are good enough that they should have been in a finals by now. But I do think there's something to just the culture and, and how that was how that was put together that this is in many ways an inevitable endpoint of the way that team was constructed. And even in Denver, wasn't the first 25 games last year a little bit of a problem with Michael Porter Jr. trying to assimilate in and oh, guys like wasn't the, I mean, and so by the way, well, that's not over. I don't think that's over. I mean, Michael Porter's a really, really talented player. He's not he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And I think there's still bumpy days ahead. Might be this year, might be next year, might be both. But there's bumpy days ahead where we try to figure out who's the – I think the number one is pretty solid, but you never know. But who's the number two, the number three, and where do we all fit together? That's still a question that Denver hasn't won anything yet. So that, that question still has to be answered. Michael Porter Jr. leads the way here. I think he's going to – we haven't talked about it much. I think he's like the story of the, the division. I think Denver's going to be really good. He's so fabulous. And without uh, Murray, I think Denver's going to be fine because Porter uses all those possessions actually more efficiently. And I'm a fan of Monty Moore. I think they get through unless they just wear out. But all of a sudden, Jamal Murray comes back in whenever that may or may not be. And Michael Porter Jr. has been taking 21 shots a game. Is he really going to want to take 15? Oh, man, that's a great point. Scaling him down will definitely be difficult. Well, so I wanted to give the stats on basically Jamal Murray, or sorry, on on MPJ after Jamal Murray went down. This is kind of a rough proxy of it. So there are 22 games kind of Jamal played and won that one when he got hurt against the Warriors. MPJ, uh, 22 games. 
34 minutes a game, 23 points, 55% from the field, 44% from three on 7.6 threes per game, 85% from the line, not taking a lot. And for those who like the kind of the advanced stats, 67% true shooting on 24 usage. Insane. It's insane. Those numbers are off the charts. His efficiency, I mean, every year, you know, the stat muse does those little, this hasn't happened since this guy. And there's one for every player in the NBA, but some of the ones with Michael Porter were, you know, the most efficient high volume scorer that we've seen since, you know, in 20, 30 years. And, you know, a lot of that was as a third option or playing with the Jokic and you know that bumps everything up this year he'll have a little more attention on him but his ability what makes him different when he gets compared to Kevin Durant a lot or, or some of these other guys what makes him different from all the other scores in the NBA is his willingness to shoot he doesn't need complex moves Kevin Durant's always trying to get to the rim or he's trying to get separation to get a shot off. Michael Porter needs the tiniest amount of daylight before he feels comfortable going into a shooting motion. And at 6'10", 6'11", you know, he, it, it's not a bad shot from him. So that's where, to me, he is a guy that any shot he takes is a pretty good shot. And getting a guy to scale that to the proper degree is a really tough ask. I think he's been very good at it so far. But this is a year where you ask him to scale it up. And asking him to scale it up just enough and not too much is going to be a really interesting question. Adam, how much did he, his numbers aren't quite as good in the playoffs. Right. How much did he, and really the noticeable number in the playoffs is shot attempts are way down. Yep. Um, how much did some, did anything get exposed there? Yep. And then it is worth noting that last year there were virtually no shoot arounds, particularly by the time he was playing so that nobody really was able to do scouting reports because of COVID in the same way. If in fact we get that this year, how much do you think that there will be, you know, by game 25, game 30, a real report on how to play him that he's going to have to adapt to? I don't think that's going to happen in the regular season at all. I, I'm, I'm, I would be pretty shocked. I think he's going to have a fantastic regular season and, um, and put up some big numbers. He'll have some monster nights, forty point nights. Might even get a fifty point night. He's just that type of score. The playoffs are interesting because that's a scouting report twenty four hours before. Like, okay, guys, force him this way, do that, or we're going to cover him this way. Denver has enough options that if you overload on Michael Porter, you're going to lose to Jokic and Barton and everybody else. So I think they're going to be fine. But in a playoffs, I, this is what's interesting about Porter. He could be the most improved player of the year. He could be an all-star this year. And going into the playoffs, I'm going to say, okay, here's the real test. Because last year, it, that number, the shot attempts going down, that was not a coincidence. You look at watching it, the eye test showed you that even in the first series, Norman Powell got physical with him. He got into him, got into his space. And, you know, Denver didn't have Murray. They didn't have Barton. They didn't have a lot of guys. But they didn't. When, when Porter couldn't shake free to get that little separation to get into a shot, he didn't have counters to him. I think he's young enough that he probably worked on that stuff this offseason and it'll be meaningfully better by the time the playoffs roll around. I just don't think we're going to know the answer to that until the playoffs. I think that's totally fair, personally. David, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I, I mean, that was well stated. I, I, I asked the question without an opinion, so I just kind of let it sit. Yeah, he definitely struggled with physicality. His handle hasn't wasn't very tight, and so those are things that I don't think will be punished for. I just the Denver's offense it hums um, in the regular season, but in the playoffs there will be some good defenders that key up on him. So I, I a lot of times what I do for these is the like there are a couple other categories, and usually we do the newcomer most excited to see. I think we've gone through that a lot. Um, what rookies are you intrigued by in this division? Start with we'll start with David. Well, I guess whoever Oklahoma City rolls out, since that's all they have, right? Yeah, I mean, Giddy is... Giddy is intriguing in part because I've seen so little of him. I mean, I, I was frustrated. I was trying to watch synergy film of him and then that fell through. And then I was going to watch him in person and he got injured his ankle on like the third possession of the game. So yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, Bones Highland is a high one for me as well. 
Bones is going to be so fun. It, it, he's just a fun personality. He's going to be one, if, if he makes it. Not, he's not a. He was a twenty-six pick. I don't know if he's going to make it or not. But if he makes it, he is going to be, I think, a fan favorite around the NBA. Just one of those guys everybody likes because he's got this incredible personality. He's a very flashy player. You know, he's a one-on-one type scorer. His passing is better than than I expected by by quite a bit. But he had a you know media Denver's doing media availability this week via Zoom, and he spoke for. He was one of the first players to spoke, and by his own accounts. This is according to per Bones Highland. Him and Jokic are undefeated in pickup games over the summer. So those two. Yes, that's what uh, I want to hear. This is even better than Muscle Watch. Uh, this is even better than Muscle Watch. We have pickup, pickup watch, and uh, Jokic uh, and Bones, the the best duo you've ever seen. I'll tell you, as a Jazz fan, if Bones Highland's playing, I'm fired up. Why is that? It means something went wrong. Oh right, right, right. It, for him to get an opportunity, would yeah. Take a lot I mean, if he's playing, that's good for us because that means well, something went wrong in Denver. That said, I think I think the Jazz are going to have real opportunities. Or sorry, not the Jazz. The Nuggets are gonna they're gonna need to try a lot of guards out in the time when Jamal Murray's unavailable because just need to see what works. They have options then, and I think that was that was one of the real limitations as guys continued to get hurt for them last year. But the idea for Denver of basically the season being a trial in the sense now they need to do well enough that they can be have a decent seed so that if Jamal comes back they can be there but maybe Mike Malone has a little bit more latitude here to to try some of these other guys to see if it works well here's one thing to think about David because I'm with you I'm always skeptical of any rookie playing on a on a on a good team especially when there's depth here's their backup one two three Baku Kampazu Austin Rivers and PJ Dozier none of those guys can shoot or stretch the court and really they can't score I mean they can score a little bit Austin Rivers can do a little bit here PJ Dozier can get to the rim but they're not scorers and I wonder I'm with you that I think he has to beat out one of those guys to play and I don't expect that to happen but I do wonder if that second unit's really clunky and maybe he's just like hey it's you're not better than any of those three guys but you might fit better and so let's try this out here or there well I, my, my question on denver I, they're they're top loaded much better than anyone's given credit for I, i'm not worried about like the jamal murray possessions because i think they're going to michael porter jr and he's actually more efficient the question to me is like this the, the back half of denver's roster just hasn't what what is will barton stay healthy can pj dozier right. get more efficient he didn't take the step i thought he was going to take last year uh, i you know in the playoffs against the jazz he was super good in the bubble and then i thought there was another step and it just didn't happen like that so you're absolutely right that's the question to me about denver it's you know i also think we have to be really careful like when like the question about utah's like what happens when like my like oh my gosh what are they gonna do for their ninth guy okay well when we're worried about denver and utah's ninth guys they're really <laughs> freaking good Right like, right. like they're really, really freaking good. Um, you know, I think Jared Butler, if you're talking about rookies, he's going to get to play because Mike Conley's yep. not going to play back to backs. And so Jared Butler's going to play Jared Butler. Or Trent Forrest going to play every back to back. What have you um, heard about him? Because I, I heard really great thing. I mean, there's just so many question marks around, obviously, the medicals, but I've just heard great things about him as a player. So I watched him after we drafted him. Um, I thought I saw something that was a lot better than a 40th pick, but like the idea that I watched a lottery pick seemed like a really big jump to me. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Lottery's, um, lottery's high. Yeah, lottery's high. It, sure. It's interesting that like when you compare him to Bones Highland, his number, he's about the same age. I think he's 20 years old now. He was, he was 18 and 19 at Baylor in his two years there. He shot 42% from threes. His numbers are actually better. They're actually similarly, unless Highland's got great reach, they're both small. They're both 6'3", 195, 
Butler's reach is only six four. I think it's um, six nine. I think he has. A, he has so Highland's got that really long. Bones Highland's got that really long reach, which is the difference. But Butler's numbers are better, kind of, and he won a title. So right. um, you know, we'll see. I, I if you're a really good team and you're relying on a rookie, it's probably an issue. It's true. Like what? What was the like? If we run through last year's playoffs, you didn't see a lot of young guys anywhere after the second or first round. Like it John Morant in the first before, round. It was the it. year before with Tyler Hero that I think got everybody thinking, like, oh, yeah, the rookie's going to be a big player. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the exception, not the rule. Right. Uh, so we'll, we'll transition into kind of, I mean, we've talked a lot about the season preview, but we'll move through quickly through this because we've already spent a lot of time on it. And so typically it's ranking the teams one to five. But before we get to that, I want to have a big picture idea out there, which is I've been grappling since basically the offseason really began with how to handle the West where Kawhi Leonard is back at maybe at some point this year. I don't think that's entirely certain. I'm a little bit more optimistic now than I was before. I don't, I mean, this, I think there was some terminology in a Ramona Shelburne piece, something like that. Anyway, you have that, you have the weirdness with the Lakers that David alluded to before. I'm dancing around the idea that if, and this is such a huge if, if you could tell me that Jamal Murray was health, was, was close to 100% at the start of the playoffs, or even if you said like a week into the playoffs, that I think Denver is the most likely team to make it out of the West. Is that insane? No, it's just the if is is so <laughs> it's just not very likely to happen because I'm with you. If Denver had a healthy Jamal Murray and he was you know integrated and and back to his old explosive self, I I a hundred percent would feel pretty confident about Denver matching up with all the teams. Not confident as in they're definitely going. I just they would have a slight edge over teams like Utah and Phoenix and uh, whoever else, the Lakers. But the odds for them of that actually happening to me are so low. He probably doesn't get back until the first week of March. That gives you five or six weeks to get not just back the speed and everything. Everything else after missing a year, but integrated into a team that has probably changed meaningfully so uh, in your absence. I just I would really be shocked if that happens this year for him. I don't think you're insane. I think there's five teams in the Western Conference that could either play in the play-in game or win the West. Mm. Wow, that I, Dallas, I, I, you know, Dallas, as, Dallas, as Denver, wild as Golden State Clippers Lakers, as wild as that is when you say it, I with the nuances of this team, I think it's plausible. Like, I don't think the Blazers can win the West, so but I think they can play in the play-in game. I think they'll probably likely to play in the playing game but like yeah denver dallas clippers lakers and then uh warriors could all play in the playing game and in theory i guess could all win it I ha- i'm a little less high on the warriors um i get the idea that clay's coming back but like they weren't a playoff team last year um and i don't really think steph can be any better and i don't expect rookies to have a big impact so i'm not quite sure where i think the warriors got better other i mean clay coming back's real but like off two years like i'm a little skeptical on that so i'm not as high on the warriors i think the lakers are going to have just a horrendously difficult time scoring in the half court um and unless anthony davis has a monster season i just actually don't like that roster so i could see them player loading avoiding injuries coasting and suddenly being 34 and 31 and being like oh crap we got to avoid the playing game um in fact i think that's likely um maybe 34 and 29 or something like that and i also just think that there could be seven teams in the league that win close to 50 games which means if if utah phoenix is at the top at 54 55 well you suddenly have one thing go wrong and you're seventh in the west and you're suddenly playing in a playing game Mm. It's really what you believe, you know, it really comes down to what you believe this, how many wins you think the seventh team is going to get. If Paul George, I think Paul George could very well have an MVP season and the Clippers, like, it's not like Nicholas Batum, Markeith Morris, and all those guys are going to be complaining if they have to use three more possessions a night. Right. right? They're all really, really good. And they're like, they've all sacrificed dramatically to play with Kawhi and Paul George. 
I, I don't think they're going to have – like they're going to be good. Like they may not be number one in the West, but I certainly don't think they're like a – I think the betonline.ag over-under on them is like 45. Like I don't see that at all. I see them as a 50-win team. Yeah, I could be <laughs> scarred by watching them kick the crap out of us in game five or six. <laughs> it is I, – I do wonder that. It, it is it is funny, the perspective, because I'm a little bit lower on them. I think I would go – Utah and Phoenix are the teams that we know are good and they don't have any question marks coming in or any major question marks like a player missing or this or that. So to me, they're at the top. The Lakers are a team that I don't know if they're the one seed or the seven or eight seed or I, I, I don't know what they are. They I, they don't make a ton of sense to me, but I'm never going to bet against LeBron and Anthony Davis and Westbrook adds that athleticism. So to me, they're in their own sort of tier that could go up or could go down. And then you got a bunch of teams that are, to me are like Denver, the Clippers. And I think Dallas and Portland are a bit a little bit lower um, in, in my book. But I think they're kind of in that same tier where there's just too many question marks for me to feel confident that they are better than what people expect or much worse than people expect. We'll see. The West I, 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 I think there's I think there's somebody in this conversation that has a that has a take on the Lakers if they choose to express it in this forum <laughs> or not. They they have the right to if they want to. It was so it was so spicy last time. I mean, I think they're the ninth best offensive team in the West. Okay, offense. I think they're I think they're really bad offensively. I think they're a really really bad offensive team. You can talk to me about how great they're going to be in transition, but at best you're in transition 18 percent of the time. Right. Their eliteness was the fact that they're defense that they're good defensively. They just added Carmelo Anthony. Like Russell Westbrook's not a good defensive player. Like, the, uh, fine, they're going to have to be great defensively, but being de- great defensively is hard freaking work. Well, and, and I just don't think that group of players wants to work that hard. So, I mean, I said it. I think they're going to be 34 and 31, 34 and 29, and be staring at the playing game. Now, they might win the West when it gets down to it. But the other thing is, like, I know this is like blasphemy, and he, but LeBron's getting older. Yeah. He's not as good as he once was. Anthony Davis was flat out not good last year. Now, was that just last year, pandemic, all this? stuff maybe but i think for the lakers to be good anthony davis has to be nikola Jokic. yeah he might be in the playoffs i mean we'll see but it is interesting you make the point about how hard it is to be good on defense because they have been good on defense the last two years and they broke down and they the bubble run this is another thing that i'm not i'm not saying this against the lakers but they did get you know what was it five or six months off in the middle of the season and then right into the playoffs so i am curious to see if they can be that defensive even if they do have the pieces which we don't know can they be that for 82 games do they want to be and if not can they be that typical title team that is bad defensively or average for half the year and then they turn it on when it's the time that's probably their ticket to being a championship team this year and that's just a that's a tough needle to thread the other one if you, if you want to talk about the title run and you like, i'm not denying it at all but they got very fortunate that they were a bad i think they were about 21st or 22nd in the league in half court offense that year and then they didn't play any really good defensive teams right right, right? like denver was 16th in the league defensively the rockets didn't have anything and then the, the heat the Ro- were the heat were injured in that series right and they're only the ninth best defensive team so they, they got through this without playing an elite defensive team to win their title yeah. okay so uh let's briefly go through it adam do you want you can pick whatever criteria you want do you want to rank these teams one to five um i will go utah one denver two portland three minnesota four oklahoma city five um denver is a big as just a big mystery because of the health I, I do think if they had jamal murray i would probably put him number one but seeing as i don't expect him to be back and I, I think he might actually be a drag on the team at the end as they try to reintegrate him i think that comfortably behind utah pretty sizably so 
Um, kind of boring if I say the same thing, right? No, but I, I think I think it's right. I will I will note this. I think the Jazz are a monstrous regular season team. Like I think they're. I I, I mean maybe they're not going to put up the crazy like plus what was it plus eleven point three clean the glass net rating last year. I'm not saying they're going to do that, but they have one of the only two consistent home court advantages, and they're a they're a well coached team. They're an incredibly talented team, and their most important defensive player, Rudy Gobert, is very durable. So I think they're going to be damn good. I don't know if you know this, but I think Rudy Gobert is really good. I mean, I I think he deserved more serious MVP consideration than he received. Mm-hmm. I would I mm-hmm. would agree. Last year, I thought he was he was unbelievable. Last, he, here's the thing: if Rudy plays, Jazz win lots and lots and lots of games. He's just he's just astronomically impactful on games. Now, maybe if you game plan, you know, and and the idea that he was the problem in the playoffs is a, is is almost become a litmus test for whether you watch the game or not. The problem yeah, in the, the problem in the playoffs was that like, like the Jazz got guards couldn't guard any. That Reggie Jackson went straight line to the rim every single time. Like if somebody could have actually made them pause for one or two seconds, maybe Rudy could have helped and you could have rotated. Yeah. Um, okay. Last last question. Well, hold on. I was just going to say real quickly on this with Utah, David, is they have nothing left to prove in the regular season, but I think they're good enough that they're not even trying to prove anything. They still will probably be the one or two seed, and that's a weird place for a team, a spot for a team to be in, and that's why I think their season might be a little weird. Is do you get really hyped if you're the one or two seed? You kind of expect it, um, but at the same time, you don't gain confidence from being that like you maybe did last year because you know your real test will only come in the playoff series. No, I think that's certainly the question of their season is getting ready for the postseason. I think the one seed really matters. Like they walked through Memphis, and had they not done some silly right. stuff in Game One, they should have swept that series. Um, and then you know maybe Mike Conley doesn't get hurt in Game Five. Um, right. and then you're actually rolling. So I, the idea there's a little bit of a nomenclature out here right now that this idea that like oh well it doesn't really matter what our seeding is because we lost in the second round. Well, you know what the seeding got you to the second round without much support. Right. Right. So I think seeding actually really does matter. And it was unfortunate they ran into the team that could play the way that they weren't able to play in the Clippers. And maybe they're it's going to happen again. I mean, they've run in, you know, that is that is their bugaboo. Um, yeah, I mean, but, ask, ask the Bucks if seeding matters, considering considering right. where they where they ended up and they didn't they didn't have to face the Sixers because the Hawks beat them and everything else like that. Like it matters. It matters a ton. The it, the analogy for me with the with the Jazz there could be I I can't pinpoint the year. Maybe one of you guys knows it. There was a year for the Rockets where they were like we they were top two talent and they had just lost to the Warriors and everybody's I think it was maybe 17 18 and they were still so good that even if they didn't have their foot on the accelerator which Harden did but other guys may not have they were still that good I think the Jazz are kind of like that that's um, interesting um, yeah I mean hey the Jazz have got to prove they can win a postseason I would remind everyone that their best player is 24 years old and that most best players don't win until they're 26 or 27 so it's not you know, I don't think it's that outlandish that, you know, Giannis won at 28, LeBron won at 28, Kawhi Leonard's first year without Tim Duncan won at 28. Like, that's kind of what guys do. They win at 28 and 29 and 30. That's that's when you win in this league. Oh, um, right. And I'm a big believer, frankly, at this point, maybe, um, you know, there's some exceptions, but I, I'm a pretty big believer right now that this league is very different than it's ever been before with the amount of players that can win a playoff game with the lack of expansion, the overall talent that, that teams just have a 12, 13, 14% chance to win the title. And that's kind of what Milwaukee's had the last three years. And one of the three came up, but I'm not convinced at all that last year's Milwaukee 
team is actually, I mean, Drew Holiday helped them, but like, I'm not sure that they actually had that much of a better chance to win than they didn't in the bubble or that they didn't the year before when they ran into Miami. They've been fabulous all three years and last year broke for them. And is there going to be a year where it breaks for Phoenix or breaks for Utah or breaks for Denver who are all sitting around at 13, 14% chance to win the title? Get, give it enough shots. Maybe you break through. I think that is the logic behind all the teams following the Suns lead. And you could argue the Bucks as well of just get into the arena, get in the mix. And if you're in there, then you can, then it maybe works out because it's one way to define who wins the championship is it's the healthiest viable team. And so like, if you want to go with the Raptors when they won in 19 or the Lakers when they won in 20, you know, like you have to be a viable team, but then it's in some ways it's the healthiest team that's left. And getting into the mix is then a requirement. However, I will say, I think that's a really interesting idea and massively important. We'll get a lot more information on this year. It's possible that that's everybody but the Nets. That the Nets are just so damn good right. and they were out two of their three best players in their biggest challenge of a series last year. And if the Nets make it through that series, I think they walk through the rest of it. And so maybe it's you have five teams or seven teams or whatever that are picking through everything other than the 40% or whatever that Brooklyn has. Yeah, I agree. I agree with this. It is an exciting. I love that point, David. I think I've regurgitated it two or three times now since I since I heard you say it the other day. Um, and, and I'm with it. We even talked about the Warriors. They had the cap spike and got Kevin Durant. And maybe that this has actually been a seven or eight year trend, but it was just disguised by one juggernaut of a team. But I, I, I'm with it. The more I we, think about it, the more I like it. We've had a different champion in the NBA for four straight years. The last time that happened was 1979 when you had an 80. So the Celtics 80-81, the Lakers 79-80, the Supersonics 78-79, and the Bullets 77-78. It actually was five straight because Portland 77-76. So that's five straight years. Since then, we have not had four different champions the way we have here with the Warriors, Raptors, Lakers, and Bucks. And had Durant not gone to the Warriors, I think there's a legitimate chance we actually could be on a run of seven straight different champions right now. If we hadn't had that cap spike, you'd, you'd have Cleveland, Golden State, Maybe OKC, Toronto, Lakers, Bucks. Thank goodness yeah. that didn't happen. Um, yeah, I like it. That, another way to phrase this, by the way, you saying the dates, I didn't realize it. That was the merger. So you're talking about all the way back from the ABA-NBA merger. We started with five different champions. Then we've just had 40 years of dynasties, and now you've got four different champions. That's really interesting. So there's something different. about. Here's where I really think the league is very, very different than it's ever been before. And we'll see it this week when, when, when NBA rank comes out. Donovan Mitchell can win you a playoff series. Like he can go win two or three games in a playoff and win you a playoff series. Where's he going to rank? 18th? Right. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's going to be wild. I mean, we're in a we're in a brave new world and the importance of offense and defense is is really shifting around. I'm I'm really really excited to see it. It's it's so fascinating. But I know you guys have things to do. I'm going to thank you so much for taking the time. It's an absolute pleasure. Danny, I like this so much. We should do it a third time. <laughs> uh yeah, say same, Danny. Always one of my favorite pods to do every year. Thanks so much to David and Adam for taking the time to come on. You can check out Locke on Utah Jazz Radio Broadcast, which I truly love. I don't know if David knows this. We'll see if he listens to the rest of this pod, that I actually listen to Radio League Pass a lot, and I think that he does an excellent job along with many of the other broadcasts. I think that radio is an underappreciated way to love basketball and to, to enjoy it. 
and also, of course, you can listen to the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On Jazz, and everything else great that David is either directly involved in or is the creator, you know, the creator, the poobah of, which is such an impressive undertaking that I was so personally proud to be involved in in the early stages. And of course, you can also follow him on Twitter at dlock09, D-L-O-C-K-E-09. And of course, Adam Morris with DNVR. Again, so thrilled for DNVR's success and for Adam and Locked On Nuggets. And you can follow him on Twitter if you don't already at Adam Morris, A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. And as came up at different moments in time throughout the podcast, an additional thank you to these two gentlemen for having the for having the patience with me to record again. We were, I want to say an hour and a half into a really good podcast, and I I don't know what happened, but it, it um, the rec- I have two different recordings that usually work, but they both failed, and I hadn't seen it. So we ran it again, and uh, that one was, I, I'm so sad that you listeners won't be able to hear it, because I thought it was a really clarifying conversation for the three of us in terms of where basketball is, where it's going, everything else like that. It was a lot of fun, and big elements of that ended up coming into this podcast. So apologize to those two and apologize to you guys that you don't get to hear it. We were a part of it. So that was pretty fun. Real GM radio will be back this coming week. It'll be sooner than this. Cause this is a pretty much a Sunday release. So that is, it'll be faster than that. I will be back from my honeymoon and lots of, things to discuss there. And that's why it's great to stay up with this podcast by subscribing, downloading every episode. You never know when it's going to come out. It's not only my availability, but guests. And this time was more mine than anything else. So subscribing, downloading that, and then also helping other people find the show, whether that is leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing, or just telling people about it. Anything like that can be can be a big help. And keep an eye for a lot more content of mine on the horizon. I will be a more regular part of Dunked On very soon, of course, as we get back into the season. Nate's been doing great work with the team previews, which he truly loves doing. So you can listen to that on Dunked On Prime, and then we do the free episode every week. And... Who knows? Maybe you will hear more about other things that I'm working on in the near term. I, I I think there's a possibility that might be happening in the next little bit. So that's maybe to follow me on Twitter at Danny LaRue. And as always, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. I read it regularly. They go into a separate place in my inbox. I read them. I usually say every day, but on my honeymoon, I have not. I will read them when I get back. And... But I do read them, and then I respond when I can, but I don't promise that. I promise to read it, and I get a fair amount of it, and it makes the show better. It's people to have on, or, hey, do this, don't do this, and I'm not going to do everything that everybody says, but I, I do take it to heart, and I think that's what that's what you're asking for, and that's what I'm going to do. So thank you so much to everybody for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash surface pro 8. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.